I heard a little bit of a ring. Jeremiah chapter 32. I'm going to try to jump right into the message this morning. We have a very lengthy chapter that I'm going to attempt to cover here. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to read along or even on an electronic device. Uh, we're going to do a few things on the screen a little bit later, but we're just going to stay in this one passage of Jeremiah chapter 32. And I'll be reading from the King James Version if you would like to read along. Jeremiah chapter 32 We'll be speaking this morning on the subject of Jeremiah buys a field. Jeremiah buys a field. I like this story, and I've thought about trying to get to it for a while, so I'm excited to get to the message here this morning. Let's jump right into it. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse number 1. The Bible says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. Verse 2 is the key to remember throughout the rest of this story. God is going to tell Jeremiah to do something that at first glance doesn't make much sense. Not to us and not to Jeremiah, but Jeremiah was going to do this thing, which God instructed him to do as an act of faith to say that he believed that God was going to keep all of his promises to the nation of Israel. And we should believe the word of the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even if it looks at the moment like it doesn't make sense to keep doing what God said to do. We should obey the word of God and have faith that God is going to keep his word. Verse number two tells us that the army of Babylon was in the midst of besieging Jerusalem. They were attacking them. They were getting ready to invade and to overcome Jerusalem. And God's people were going to be carried away captive and live under foreign rule. But verse two tells us that while this was taking place, while those armies of Babylon were coming to take Jerusalem, that Jeremiah was shut up in prison which was in the king of Judah's house. Inside the court of the king's house, Jeremiah is in prison. And Jeremiah finds himself imprisoned, not by the foreign invaders, but rather by the king of Judah himself. Let's read verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, ye shall not prosper." Jeremiah found himself in a situation which is familiar to the prophets of God often in the Bible. He was thrown in prison because the king did not like the message that Jeremiah was preaching. Jeremiah came to the king and he said, I have a word from the Lord to preach unto you. And the king might have said, all right, let's hear what does God have to say? And he said, well, the king of Babylon's going to come. He's going to conquer you, take your kingdom, and he's going to carry you off to Babylon and hold you captivity. And the king of Judah did not like this message from Jeremiah, so he had him locked up 
in prison. And it wasn't necessarily because he didn't like the messenger, but it was because he did not like the message. At another place in the Old Testament, we find the prophet crying out to King Ahab and he comes and tells him of the judgment that's going to come. And when Ahab sees Elijah coming, he says, behold, here comes he that troubles Israel. He said that prophet always has something to say that troubles our nation and it's your fault. You're kicking up dust and stirring up all this trouble. And the prophet of God said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your house have troubled Israel. You see, the prophet of God, and in modern terms, the preacher of God, it's not our job to come up with the message, but rather simply to be the messenger and deliver what God has already said. The preacher is just the mailman. Not just that I work for the post office and I'm the mailman, but if you don't like the contents of a letter that was delivered to your house, you shouldn't get mad at the person who delivered it to you. Get mad at the person who wrote it. And oftentimes the world have a problem, has problems with the people of God or the preachers of God, not because of the Christians, but because of the content of what they say that came from God. This was not Jeremiah's message. This was God's message that God was going to allow the Babylonians to come and to conquer them and to besiege their city and that Zedekiah, the king of Judah, would not escape but would be carried off to face the king of Babylon and be held in captivity. It was not Jeremiah's message, it was God's message. And the reason that God was allowing Israel, his chosen people, to go through this time of punishment, as we'll see from the text, was because of their sin and the way that they had rejected the word of the Lord. Let's continue on in verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is in thine hand to buy it. Translation of what that verse is saying. God told him that his cousin was going to come to him and say, there is a field that is in Anathoth and it has come to you to have the right of redemption. Whoever had control of it before had died or had not renewed, however it worked. And the legal proceeding was to go through the family. And it came to Jeremiah that he would have the legal right to buy this field if he chose to buy it. Now, if you've done any looking at real estate in this area in any recent days, you'll find out that the price of real estate has gone up. This is one of those things that they call a seller's market, where if you want to buy a house, you might have to fight with 30 different people and pay 100000 over what the list price is. Why? Because we're in an area that's growing. The economy's doing good. People are moving in, and it's the basic supply and demand. There's more people who want a house and property than property or houses available. But when your hometown is on the verge of being conquered by a foreign army, the laws of your nation being torn up and you becoming slaves, that's not a great environment for property value. It's not a great time to buy property right when you know you're on the verge of your land being invaded because you would look at it from an investment standpoint and say this field that I'm buying is not going to be worth anything. I won't even have the rights to it anymore if we're conquered by the Babylonian army. But God's message to Jeremiah continues in verse eight, in verse number eight. 
So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, By my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. He knew, in other words, that God, who had warned him that this was about to happen, was telling Jeremiah, when you have this opportunity to buy this property, I want you to buy it. And you see the reason, as we'll see from the text, that God is giving him the instructions to buy the field is not that he was going to profit off of it or make a lot of money, but rather it was going to be an act of faith that even though this punishment from God was coming through the Babylonians, he wanted Jeremiah to have faith and to show the people of the land and through that act of faith of buying this property that he believed that God was ultimately still going to keep all of his promises that he had made to Abraham and that he had made to the nation of Israel. So he buys the field. Verse 9. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence, verse 10, and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Manasseh, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. Translation, when Jeremiah had the opportunity to buy the field, even though he was in prison, they came into the court of the king's palace where he was being held prisoner and they carried out a legal transaction. And in the sight of witnesses, Jeremiah paid the money that was needed to purchase the field and the evidence was recorded and the property was deeded to Jeremiah. Verse 13. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. Then look at verse 15. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. The reason I'm going to buy this field, Jeremiah publicly proclaimed, is he said, I want you to know the word of the Lord is going to come true. Like I said, the Babylonians are going to come and conquer this nation because God is punishing you right now for your sins. But there will also come a day where God's ultimate promise that he made to the nation of Israel, which was that no nation would conquer them and that God would establish his throne there forever, would ultimately come true. For God is a God of judgment and God punishes his people when they stray. But God is still a God that keeps his promises. And this morning, if you are a child of God, if you have become born again and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and turned to him and are trusting not in your good works or anything else, but only in the cross of Jesus Christ for your salvation, the Bible says you are his child. You are saved right at this very moment. John chapter three says, whosoever believeth in the son hath everlasting life. 
You see, if you have everlasting life, then by definition, that's not life that you can lose if you don't live up to it. That's not a salvation you can lose if God changes his mind and decides to take it away from you. It's not a salvation you can apostatize yourself out of. I'm here to say I truly believe in once saved, always saved. If you have been born again, you're not in danger of losing your salvation. You are God's child. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that as God's child, we will not lose our sonship. But if we walk in sin and rebellion, we can lose our fellowship. And someone who claims to be a Christian should be able to have some evidences of salvation in their life. They should be able to show a couple of things to say, I'm claiming to be God's child. Well, we should be able to look at your life and say, where is some evidences that you actually are a child of God? And the Bible says that one of those evidences is that when we continue in sin and refuse to repent, we will be chastised. We will be punished by God. And the book of Hebrews says that if we have no chastisement when we sin, then we are an illegitimate child. We don't actually have a heavenly father. We are not born again. So we may think this morning foolishly, well, if I mess up in sin, it doesn't really matter because I'm saved anyway. In the first place, that's not a way that a child of God should think. And if you think that way, you might need to check your salvation and see, did you truly become born again? Because sin should grieve our heart the way that it grieves God. But also know that if we sin and if we continue into it as a child of God, there will be punishment. There will be chastisement. But God still keeps his promises. And God has promised that those he saves will be saved forever. We'll have eternal security. So I know this morning we're talking about the nation of Israel and then we're making a parallel over here on the side to talk about eternal security. But the principles hold fast, which is that God keeps his promises. And when God selects someone to be his people, when God or when God saves someone and promises them eternal security, he will keep his promises but he still looks to us and will chastise us if we foolishly continue into sin. And that's what was taking place with the nation of Israel. I hope you're staying with me. I know we're covering a lot of verses this morning. Let's continue on in Jeremiah 32 and verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Now let's just point out for a moment that what Jeremiah is going to do is he doesn't appear arrogant. He doesn't appear to be chastising God or angry at God, but rather while he's praising God, he's also going to voice his confusion to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I know that you're right. I know you can do everything. I know there's nothing too hard for you, but I am a little bit confused about what's happening at the moment. And by the way, if we have confusion, there's no one better to talk to it about it than to God. God does not judge us for pouring out a broken heart. God does not judge us for crying out to Him with a penitent heart that is broken and contrite and saying, God, where are you? You promised you would be my helper. I know you're good. I know you're going to keep your promises, but I need you and I can't find you. Job said, oh, that I could find God. Oh, that I could come before His seat and make mine argument before Him. And you say, what is Job saying? He wants to argue with God? 
No, Job is saying he wants to pray. He wants to find out what is the heart of God. He wants to state his case. He wants to see what God is truly doing. And Job said, for I know that he would put strength in me and he would help me if I could just find God and commune with them. Jeremiah starts by saying in verse 17, there is nothing too hard for thee. A variation of that phrase is given when Abraham was told that though he and Sarah were too old to bear children, that through them God would start the nation of Israel and give them more descendants than the sand that is on the seashore or the stars that are in the heaven. And Sarah laughed and Abraham doubted and they were given the message. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then when God came to Mary and announced that through the virgin birth, the Savior, the Messiah, would be born through her. And she said, how can these things be, seeing that I've known not a man? She was told, nothing is too hard for God. And when the rich man came and went away sorrowful, for he was not willing to admit he was a sinner and to repent, he walked away and Jesus said to his disciples, it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were overwhelmed with that thought and they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. That message or a slight variation of it was given in all of those situations. And Jeremiah is proclaiming by faith, God, I know you can do what you've said you're going to do, but I'm having a hard time seeing it at the moment. Verse 18, thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. What does he say that God does? He shows loving kindness and he recompenses iniquity. God does both. God is a God of judgment, of truth, but he's also a God of mercy and of love. And these are two completely true statements that we must rightly divide the word of truth to see exactly how they meet together and proclaim both messages to the world around us. God's a God of loving kindness, but God is also a God of judgment. God is a God who punishes sin. But He's also a God who gave His only begotten Son to die a brutal death on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. I look at the cross and I know the truth that God does not overlook sin, but rather He judges it. But I look at the cross and I also see that God has a heart of love that was willing to do whatever it took to give us an opportunity to have our sins forgiven. So then the cross teaches me that sin is so bad that Jesus had to die for it. But the love of God was so vast that Jesus was willing to die for it so that I could be born again. Verse 19, he continues praising God. Great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings, which hast set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day. And in Israel, and among other men, and has made thee a name as at this day. He's praising God for the works that he has done to lead the people out of Egypt. And continues in verse 21. And has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with great terror. 
and hast given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it. Okay, so what's he saying? He's looking back to all the things that God has done and all the miracles that God has wrought. And he says, you took your people and you brought them out of the land of Egypt and through all of the plagues and the opposition. You can read the book of Exodus and remember that no matter the obstacle, God answered the prayer. God gave them away. The Red Sea they came to, they were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And God literally split the sea and let them walk across on dry ground. What's he saying? He's saying, God, you were faithful to take care of your people. But not only does he talk about how God was faithful, but he says in verse 22, remember, he's reminding God, he's proclaiming to himself and everyone around him. Thou didst swear to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. What's he saying? He's saying, remember the promise that you made to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis that you were going to deliver to the Israelites the promised land and that the land would belong to them and that you would allow them to dwell there safely forever and that through the throne of David, it would have a ruler continuously for all time. Verse 23, they came in, they possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore hast thou caused this evil to come upon them. You see what he's doing. He's saying, God, I remembered you promised that they would get this land and get to have it forever. But I also acknowledge that your people sinned and that because of their sin, judgment is coming upon them. Verse 24, behold the mounts, which is referring to the besiegers, the soldiers that are coming. They are come unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass. And behold, thou seest it, and thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans." I know we're moving through a lot of verses this morning, so I hope you're able, as I said, to stick with me and to follow what we're saying here. But that's what Jeremiah ultimately is proclaiming in that prayer. He praises God. He does not accuse God, but he does express to God, how exactly is this going to work that you said you'd give this land to the people of Israel and they're going to get to keep it and they'll be your people forever. How is that going to work when compared with what you're telling me now by a field? Because I want the people to know that even though the Chaldeans are coming to overcome this city and Babylon's going to take you all prisoners and defeat you, I want you to buy the field to remind them that God's promises are still going to be kept he comes to God, expresses his prayer, and then the word of the Lord is going to return to Jeremiah again. And God is going to speak to him and answer him. Verse 26. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? He reminds Jeremiah of what he just said. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
And I don't know your situation this morning. I don't know what you're facing or what you're going to face in the days to come. But when our situation seems hopeless, let us remember what God himself says. Is there anything too hard for me? He's not actually trying to get Jeremiah's opinion. He's not actually wondering himself, Jeremiah, I, I don't know. Can I do anything or not? No, he's asking the rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the God that spoke this universe into existence? And the answer is no, there's nothing too hard for God. He can do anything. And when he chooses to do his will through his people, nothing's going to stop it. And we could talk about all the mighty miracles that God has done from creation and in between. But if you don't know Jesus as, as your Savior this morning, there's nothing more wonderful or miraculous that we could rejoice in than the fact that it's not too hard for him to save your soul. Doesn't matter what your sins are. The Apostle Paul said, where sin abounds, yet the more will grace abound. Verse 28. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that fight against this city shall come and set fire on this city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings unto other gods to provoke me to anger. God is saying it will happen. Sometimes in the Bible, when God pronounced judgment, his people went to him and cried out for mercy and God stopped the judgment and he stayed it. And that's why David said, when God said, pick what your punishment is going to be for numbering the people and for not trusting me with that. David said, I'm going to refuse to choose what it will be for let me fall into the hands of God for man is cruel, but God is good. God is kind and who knoweth whether God will repent. And sometimes God did pull back the judgment he had set forth. But oftentimes God said, as he heard the cries, no, it's too late. I am going to let your land be judged. Another wonderful book to study is the book of Habakkuk, only three chapters long. God gave him the same type of message. The foreign armies are coming. They're going to defeat your nation. They're going to be God's rod of judgment. And Habakkuk had cried out, oh God, please have mercy. God, please stop the judgment. But by the end of the book, he came to the realization that God had stated him to him. He was not going to stay the judgment. And Habakkuk turned his prayer and to, differently and said to God, in wrath, remember mercy. And we can still pray to God whose heart is kind that he would withhold the wrath. But even when the wrath is coming and can't be stopped, we can say, God, in the midst of wrath, please remember your mercy. And all of God's judgment is always tempered with mercy. It's always tempered by less wrath than could be given. For if the wrath of God was to be poured out on the world and even upon his people justly and fairly and fully, we would all die. We wouldn't be here. The lake of fire would be what we would deserve for our sins. So God says it shall come. This city shall be punished. And then he begins to remind Jeremiah why this is necessary. Because God's own people had gone upon the rooftops and offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods and had provoked God to anger. And God did not take lightly the fact that they were worshiping idols and turning their back on the God who had brought them out of Egypt and done those mighty works on their behalf. Verse 30, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah 
have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. Verse 31, For this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they built it, even unto this day, that I should remove it from before my face. Verse 32, Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. And we must remember this morning that we know this is talking about the nation of Israel, but we also can draw parallels from the truth of the word of God to what takes place around us. And we must remember that a God who is consistent in his character, consistent in his doings, if he's willing to punish Israel, his own people, because they had turned their backs on God and all the way down the line, the kings, even the prophets were not speaking on God's behalf. And God said, I will judge you then no less will the nation of America be spared from judgment if we continue to reject God and to say to God, we don't want you. We don't want your words. We don't want your commandments. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do what your word calls sin. The hand of God's judgment no doubt has been upon us and no doubt will be if we continue to run from God and away from the values upon which our nation was founded. Not that it was perfect, ever has been or ever will be. But in our founding documents of the United States of America, you can find many principles that came directly from the Word of God. And yet we rejoice that God says if His people will be a remnant and will preach the truth, that God oftentimes will spare judgment for a small amount of people who continue to stand and to be light and to be salt. And the darker that the world gets around us, the more important it is that we keep our light shining. The more important it is that you keep your light shining, that you're willing to live for God, to speak out for God, and to be a light to others around you. The other application we could make is that it's so easy to read the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see how the nation of Israel, they had a good king. They were doing good. God's blessings were upon them. And then you turn a couple pages in 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings, wherever you're at, and there was a bad king. And they forsook the way of God. And God said, I'll punish you and let the invaders come. And then they cried out to God. And God sent a deliverer. And they were delivered. And there was a good king. And they were doing good. And then there was a bad king. And they all did bad. And the cycle goes over and over again. And we look at them and say, how could they be so foolish? How could they not learn their lesson? Or we look at the disciples and think, how could they be so foolish as to walk with God, yet to continually doubt Him? But we're missing the point of why we're given all these stories. If instead of just looking at those stories and saying, they're so stupid, how could they do that? If we don't have this moment of realization and say, oh yeah, that's talking about me too. How many times have I doubted God, even though I know His character? How many times have I forgotten what His Word said and failed to put it into practice? How many times have I backslidden and sinned and dealt with the consequences and cried out for God to get me out of my mess? And He did! Praise God that He's merciful. Because if God was not merciful, not one of us would stand. Lamentation says it is the Lord's mercies. It is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every morning. 
in this, if you failed today, take heart that the reason that anyone comes to God is saved by God, is blessed by God, is not because we can achieve a certain level of righteousness, but because He is a merciful and loving God that covers our sins and hears us when we cry and forgives us and blesses us. And Lamentation says it's of His mercies that we are not consumed. And then it says of the Lord's mercies, they are new every morning. Every morning. If you failed yesterday, you can wake up today and see the sunrise and know that there was a God in heaven who created that, who says, my mercies are brand new to you today. Claim it and start over. And if it's the middle of the day, something tells me the character of God, His mercies will still be consistent. And you can cry out for mercy then and start over right now without waiting for the sun to come up tomorrow. Let's see where we stopped off on. Verse 34. He continues talking about the sins that they did that brought His judgment. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They defiled the very temple of God. Verse 35, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And if you look at the historical references and the cross references in the Bible, you'll find that Moloch was a false god that people literally offered their children in fire unto the false god. And this provoked God's anger. At one place it says of a king he caused his sons to be burned in order to cause an offering unto Molech. And there's some disagreement. Some people think that maybe they just made the children to pass through a ceremony where they were burned a little bit. But many references believe that they actually gave their child as a burnt offering sacrifice to die unto the false idol. And perhaps nothing will bring the judgment of God upon a nation than when they treat the children in an evil manner for God hears the cries of the fatherless. God is a defender of the defenseless. And God said, I've seen your sin. I've seen what you've done to the children of your land, and you are not going to go unpunished for this. And now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof ye say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Now, Okay, let me see if I can quickly move through the time that I have left here. God is telling Jeremiah through this message, I'm going to punish my people, but I'm not done with my people. Punishment? Yes. Abandonment? No. Remember that God by His nature cannot lie. He will keep His promises. And God is telling Jeremiah, even though the whole nation is about to be taken captive by a foreign land and a foreign army, I want you to have faith and to buy this field, and to proclaim to people around you, yes, the judgment of God is coming, but also God is still going to keep His promises. Now this field where Jeremiah was going to purchase, it, it said that it was in Anathoth. And as you can see on the screen there, it's very close to the city of Jerusalem. This city in which the field was located was one of the cities of refuge in the tribe of Benjamin. It was Jeremiah's birthplace and his home. That's why the right fell to him to have a chance to buy it before it went to other people or onto the open market. And it was about three miles north 
of Jerusalem. Okay, that's very key. It was in Jerusalem. It was very close to Jerusalem. The nation of Israel was given a special promise by God. The Israelites were given a special promise by God. And the city of Jerusalem was given many special promises by God. Let's run through a bunch of verses here quickly and see if we can conclude here this message this morning. But keep in mind, we'll show quickly why it was so important that this piece of land near Jerusalem was a special place and that God said, I want you to buy this field as an act of faith to proclaim to others around you that you believe that even though Israel's being punished, God's ultimately still going to keep all of his promises to Israel. Okay, so Genesis 12, the Lord came to Abram and said to him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And I'm just here to tell you this morning that I'm not a hyper dispensationalist and I don't chop the Bible up into 27 sections and say, throw out this section and throw out that section. But if we're going to properly interpret the Bible, we're going to have to know that the nation of Israel and the New Testament church are two separate entities that existed in two separate time periods. And if we confuse them and say the church Israel and Israel is the church, then we're in danger of messing up a lot of what the Bible is trying to tell us. And God said to Abraham of you, and of your seed, I'm going to make the nation of Israel and I'm going to give you more physical descendants than that of the sand of the seashore. And of your physical descendants, which we know make up the nation of Israel, God said, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And we have been, for it was the Jews to whom God gave the Old Testament. It was through the Jews that Jesus gave the Messiah to be born. And God said, whoever blesses your descendants that make up this nation of Israel, I will bless. And whoever curses that nation, I will curse. And what we're talking about here is the Abrahamic covenant where God established that he would have a nation through his descendants, that they would be given land that had identifiable physical borders and that whoever blessed them, God would bless and whoever curses them, God will curse. And I'm going to get ahead of myself for a second now, but I just want to say that God did not place an expiration date on that covenant or on verse number three of Genesis chapter 12. And when the Israelites inhabit Jerusalem and the land surrounding it, and they're surrounded oftentimes by people who are terrorists who say the only solution for peace is that Israel be wiped off the face of the map and pushed into the sea, as the president of Iran said a few short years back. And people look at that and they blame Israel for what's taking place. We're putting ourselves in the danger of God's judgment. Because what's taking place in that land today has a spiritual component about it. And the, there is no rational reason for anti-Semitism, but rather it's a spiritual battle. And the enemies of the nation of Israel that surround them, that want to kill them, want that very land that God promised to give to them. Okay, I'll have more to say about that in just a second. In Genesis 13, the Lord told Abraham, I'm not going to read every word of this, but God told him, look up and look to the north, east, south, and west. And the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. The land that he looked and saw that God identified with borders. He said way back in Genesis chapter 12, a long time before Jeremiah 32 was written, I'm giving this piece of land to you and to your descendants. And it will be yours for how long? Forever. 
forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, in the length of it, in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelled in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And if I remember correctly, it's identifying uh, Hebron, which is about 18 miles away from Jerusalem itself. In other places, God told him, look all around. We're talking about that place that on the modern map is the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding borders that makes up the nation of Israel. And God did not say to Abraham, well, someday I'm going to rip it from you and your descendants and give it to the church. And I'm going to eliminate all my promises from Israel and, 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 and mix them together. Someone said recently, I heard you could confuse Israel in the church and maybe be okay on some things, but some things are going to be all messed up, especially your estacology, the study of end times. If you don't realize that God has a list of promises that he gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament that he's still going to keep and that there's the New Testament church, but that no matter if you're a Jew or not a Jew, you still only get born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? There's not multiple ways of salvation, but the nation of Israel is still a separate, distinct entity with their own promises that God gave to them. And uh, man, that clock moves fast and I chase too many rabbit trails, but I believe it was uh, Pastor John MacArthur who I heard one time, though I'm not a Calvinist by any means, he said every Calvinist should be a pre-millennialist because a lot of the Calvinists look at the end times doctrine and they're what they call post-millennial or amillennial. They say all those promises about God coming to earth, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and ruling and reigning for a thousand years are all figurative. It's not literally coming true. God's not actually going to rule and reign. And there's not a sort of separate promise for Israel that God's still going to keep, but rather he's given it all to the church and basically done away with, or they allegorize away all of the specific promises that God made to the nation of Israel. And what he was simply telling them was that Calvinists believe in eternal security, the perseverance of the saints. And he was saying, if you believe that God's going to keep his promises to you in the church by not taking away your salvation, you also need to believe that God will keep his promises to Israel in the Old Testament by not taking away the promises he made to them. I hope that's making sense this morning. Let me see. Um, Moses, this is God's message to Moses. He's seen their affliction in Egypt and he says, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse, let me see. Yeah, okay, so God's just saying he's going to take them away from that place and he's going to give them unto the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the same phrase that Jeremiah used. He's pointing to the promises of God when he said, I'm going to give you the promised land and it's going to be yours. Um, okay, th three different references. I'll kind of summarize this as well. But the nation of Israel had been promised that they would go to the promised land. Okay, they were taken into Egypt to be held captive by Pharaoh as part of God's judgment for their sin. But Joseph, when he got old and ready to die, told his people, I know 
that Egypt is not our final place. I know God said we're going to dwell in the promised land. So he tells them, God will surely visit you. And when God does visit you and deliver you from Pharaoh and take you out of Egypt and bring you back to the promised land, I want you to go take my bones out of the scepter and carry them with you. He was stating by faith that he knew God would take them back to the land that he had promised and not that he would abandon them in Egypt forever. And indeed, when Moses, all those years later, said, let my people go, and in the book of Exodus took them and led them out, it says Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. And ultimately, they brought the bones of Joseph and they laid him in a parcel of ground which Jacob, his father, had bought. You see what I'm saying? Jeremiah was expressing the same faith that Joseph was when Joseph said, take my bones with you out of Egypt, bring them back and plant them in my homeland because I know God's going to deliver you from this. When Jeremiah bought the field, he was by faith proclaiming, God's going to deliver you from this eventually someday. And this piece of property, though it's about to become worthless, it's still in the promised land. And there will come a day when God gives this land back to his people and therein they will prosper. 2 Kings 21, 7, the end of the verse says, In Jerusalem, God says, I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. The name of God will dwell forever. Where? In the city of Jerusalem. The other covenant is the Davidic covenant where God went to David and he said to David, I promise you that one of your descendants will sit upon the throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign forever and ever. And what was that? It was a messianic prophecy saying that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, though he was born through a virgin, he would still be born through the house and lineage of David. If you trace the genealogy of Joseph and of Mary, you find out in their family tree, they both go back to the house of David. So then Jesus Christ was born into the house of David. He is a descendant of David, even though he is the creator of David. Hence, the root and the offspring of David. David came from me, but I'm also in David's family tree. And one day in the end times when Jesus literally takes the throne in Jerusalem to rule and reign forever, he will be keeping that promise. Let me see. I'm trying to, for time's sake, to get to this. This says the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. If you read some in the Old Testament passages that prophesy of the end times, it says that Jesus Christ will come and his feet will physically touch the Mount of Olives, which is in Jerusalem. He will defeat the Antichrist and his armies and he will sit upon the throne where in Jerusalem and will rule and reign for a thousand years. You say, well, that's not forever. It's not. But when God makes a new heaven and a new earth after the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, what name does he give to our eternal place where he will sit on the throne and rule and reign? The new Jerusalem. And it, the prophecies come true. God has Israel within his heart. And I believe this morning that it is good for us to say that we stand with Israel, even in the modern day sense. And that when we say that, we're simply communicating Israel has a right to that land for God gave it to them. And legally and historically and practically, it belongs to them and not to their enemies. 
I believe in their right to exist and not to be killed by the people that hate them. I believe in their right to defend themselves. I believe in their right to stop a nation like Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and blowing up them and their children. And I believe in their right to build houses on the land that they own without being attacked by terrorists for it. And the Bible tells all of us to pray for peace in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 32, let's read verse 37 through 44 straight through and then we're done. Jeremiah 32, 37. Behold, God says, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again into this place and I will cause them to dwell safely and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I said straight through, but not, not quite straight through. Let me add a little bit. There's about 10 or 12 places in the Old Testament where God says that Israel's going to be scattered amongst the nations because of their sin, but that then in the end of days, God is going to gather them. Who? The Israelites from out all nations and bring them to Jerusalem, and He will be their God. They will be His people. They will accept Him as Messiah and will dwell within the land safely. And as I I said we're going to preach in October through first and second Thessalonians and if you mix the church in Israel together you're going to get it confused because there's one point where God says he's going to come for the church all those who are saved and rapture them to the clouds and then in second Thessalonians there's another place where just a few chapters later he says God will physically come to the earth with his angels and execute judgment on all them that know not God and you see in order to keep the end times prophecies in mind you have to know that God says the last seven years are determined upon the Israelites and upon Jerusalem. And in Matthew 24, when he's talking about people fleeing from the Antichrist, he says, let them that be in Judea flee into the mountains, those who live in Israel. And he also says that it will be a time of Jacob's trouble. I don't believe it's a time where God is going to let the Antichrist beat up on his church, but it is a time where the Israelites will be fleeing from him. The prophecies say that there will be a seven-year period where at the beginning of it, the Antichrist will make a pact with the Jews. They will have peace. He will rebuild the temple, allow them to institute their daily sacrifices. But halfway through it, he's going to turn on the Jews and in the temple will blaspheme the temple and proclaim himself to be God. But at the end of that three and a half year period, as the Antichrist chases the Jews and as he tries to destroy them, as we see in, I think, Revelation 13, where it says that they will flee into the wilderness and the serpent will try to consume them and to see them all killed. God will come back, not for his church in the clouds, but physically to the earth to defeat the Antichrist and his armies to set up his kingdom and at the start of that millennial kingdom, what does God do? He says he will gather all of the Jews from out the nations where they have been scattered and will bring them to Jerusalem and they will receive him as the Messiah. And he will see that they dwell within that physical land safely. Verse 38, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 39, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Look at verse 42. For thus saith the Lord, 
Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. There's the message that Jeremiah is proclaiming. Jeremiah has just said, this whole nation's going to get carried away captive and be prisoners. And then he says, I'm buying this property for full price. Because even though God's going to punish them, God still will ultimately keep his promises and do what he said he will do. Verse 43 speaks, I, I believe, perhaps of the millennial kingdom, even though it would come true again in their history, even as it has today. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof ye say, it is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. It may be a broken landscape now, but people will dwell here safely again. People will buy and sell property for God has promised. He would not cast off his people and that they would get to safely inhabit the land. And he shall. Men shall buy fields for money, and subscribe evidences, and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord. What can we learn from this? God punishes sin. He punished the sin from Israel and ultimately the Babylonians were punished for their sin as well. God keeps all his promises. If he's told you it, it's true. He's going to keep it. And number three, God has compassion and he will have mercy even in the midst of judgment. I got 1201. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's go ahead and have a brief time of prayer. If Rachel would like to come and play, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, either in your pew or at the altar this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it is true. Lord, we thank you that your promises are all yea to those who you have promised it to. We never have to doubt that you will keep your promises to us, your people, as you have given in your word. I pray the Holy Spirit would make application of the message this morning, however you would choose to, that, Lord, we would love to be students of the Word of God, to study it and to receive it. And bless us now as we continue in a brief moment of prayer.